Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm in pretty deep doo-doo here. I'm TJ. This is Serious Film People, a podcast about movies nominated for Best Picture, specifically movies nominated for Best Picture in 2010 at the 2011 Oscars. And this is the first episode in our 2010 series. Woo! Yay, new one. (laughs) And and Uh, updated. Huge response from the crowd, yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is the most recent year we've done. So, and this was 13 years ago now. So, <laughs> doesn't seem like that long ago. Um, 2010. Who, who were we all in 2010? I think we were all juniors in college for the fall of 2010, spring of 2011, when this Oscar season happened. So, yep. Ken Dussel, what were you up to around this time of year? Uh, I was I was stressed, most most definitely stressed with schoolwork, and also trying At Truman State, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yep. Poli sci major, and we had all kinds of good, all kinds of good stuff, papers and projects uh, going on that semester. I remember um, juggling juggling schoolwork with a long term relationship and trying my best to see some of these movies. Which I I thought back on it, I'm fairly certain I saw almost all of these before the Oscars. So even from Kirksville, Missouri, how that I, relationship work out? I managed to yeah, I managed to see them. How that relationship work out? Oh, we're married. <laughs> so it worked out. It actually worked out. Yeah. To each we'll other talk, we'll talk, or the deal. like we'll separately? Talk, Ken the closer. Yeah, we're, no, we're yeah, married together. We'll talk next week about that because I took her to a screening of the next movie on this list. With, with no... With Wait, no I, I can't remember what the next movie is. <laughs> Black Swan. With, oh, okay. I just yeah. I just checked with... The, okay, yeah. I just Ken, the next Ken was like, like yeah, if you're yeah. going to be with me long term, you better be into ballet and psychosexual lesbian dramas. That's that is, and I didn't give no for nor forewarning provided on that one. TJ, rewind the clock back to like the fall of 2010. What's uh, what's your life looking like? How's your junior year of college going? I was just a young man with so much of my life and promise ahead of me at the time. Just remembering, as this film says, every second counts, Josh. And uh, I was at the St. Louis University, um, working on the newspaper as the associate arts editor and film critic. I think I too actually can saw all 10 of these movies before the Academy Awards that year and uh, was was studying literature. In your capacity as the esteemed film critic at St. Louis University, do you remember if you wrote a review for the movie 127 Hours directed by Danny Boyle? No? I don't believe I did. Um, I'm not sure why. I just have no memory of doing it. So if, you, if it's out there somewhere, that was a different person. Um. Well, you did write you did write this past week about 127 hours on I can't remember if it was our Patreon or your Substack or both, but there is now writing by esteemed film critic TJ Keeley on this film. There is your consumption. There is writing out there. Yes, it was uh, rushed in quick thoughts, but uh, some of that will be elucidated here in due course. Well, as rushed as it may be, I found it to be very cogent and well thought out. So, uh, well done there, and you should read that if you're listening to this. Um, 2010. Yeah, I was in college as well at the University of Notre Dame, who, uh, as we're recording this, had a devastating loss last night, which I'm not going to talk about, but that's on my mind. 
Yeah. I watched Notre Dame lose and watched the guy cut his arm off and put himself through immense pain and suffering. Which which so, was you worse. Know, you need to make typical sure. Saturday for me. I was gonna say he needed to feel yes. himself, he needed to feel better about himself, is what he's what Josh is saying. I really related to Aaron Ralston as he cut off his own arm having watched Notre Dame drop a game to Louisville that they absolutely should have won. So you know, such is life. In twenty ten, let's see, speaking of Notre Dame, Brian Kelly was in his first season as head coach. We just said goodbye to Charlie Weiss, so that's how long ago this is to me in my life. Um, other things in 2010, I believe – this is off the top of the head here. I believe the Giants beat the Rangers in the World Series yep. in what would be the first of two consecutive World Series losses for the Texas Rangers, the yep. second of which would be to whom? Well, let me think about it. I was there, so that would be the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah. I distinctly (laughs) remember. uh, The St. Louis Cardinals. Yes. (laughs) How distinctly I remember was a cold and lovely October. (laughs) In fall of 2010, the Rangers were practicing for their World Series loss to the Cardinals by losing the World Series to the Giants. So, uh, In football, I believe the 2010 season, 2011 Super Bowl, was won by Aaron Rodgers and the Packers over Ben Roethlisberger and the Steelers. Uh, I believe March Madness was won by Duke over Butler in a squeaker, like a really, really close game. Um, if I remember what else, the BCS national title game for the 2011 season, 2011, I'm sorry, 2010 season, 2011 national title game was won by, uh, Cam Newton and the Auburn Tigers with coach Gene Chizik, who's now the defensive coordinator for UNC. They beat Oregon coached by Chip Kelly, who's obviously now the head coach for UCLA. So, you know, not that long ago, but kind of long ago. I was going to say, I remember that game and I can't, I it's weird thinking that was 13 years ago. That's Cam Newton over uh, Oregon. Yeah. yeah, I remember that too. Yeah. I feel like that was like, well, you know, full disclosure, when I was in college, Notre Dame wasn't quite a national contending program. So, like, I didn't really pay attention to, like, who won the national title most years. But I remember this game. I watched this game for sure. And, like, from then on, I cared about who won the national title, even though Notre Dame was nowhere near uh, nowhere near no, that but it's how it, for a while. It's but. weird how time works because in my head, I still yeah. often think of Cam Newton as, yeah, he's one of the newer Newer NFL players, and, and he's not. like half retired right, yeah, now. Exactly. In the NFL. Yeah, I think I think he's still around, but barely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Joe Biden was in the White House. He Joe he was in, was he had an office house. in the West Wing. Yeah. That's right. I wonder if he had gotten the Medal of Freedom yet, because Obama did give him the Medal of Freedom. I was like, hey, great job of a great life of public service. Go enjoy your retirement. Yeah, that was <laughs> not knowing that he that was literally right before they finished their uh, term. Yeah. Not be retiring anytime soon, so, well, that's great for him, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Um, 127 hours. <laughs> Awkward segue. Um, we usually talk about, like, um, so, okay, but real quick, 127 hours. We're doing it first because in our world, the way that Ken and TJ and I organize our Blu-ray shelves is if there's a number, that goes before the letters. So 127 hours would become alphabetically before any A, B, or C movie. However, there's some controversy here because Wikipedia does not agree with us. Wikipedia calls 127 hours an O as an O-N-E, 127 hours. But we're going with the number system. So if you're tuning in expecting to hear Black Swans, that's first alphabetically, go back Go back to grade school and learn how to alphabetize stuff. Grow up. Do you guys go with like the one goes first or the lowest number goes first? So like where do I put my copy of 27 dresses? The answer is in the garbage. I but <laughs> but are you asking like on my shelf is eight and a half ahead of or behind 127 yeah. hours because the one but it's also mm-hmm, 127. Mm-hmm. I say I say eight and a half goes before 127. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I think. And 40 Old Virgin goes between eight and a half and 127 hours, but after 27 dresses. 
And after your your Pretty copy of the forty year old version. That's <laughs> sure. TJ, when did you first become aware of not the movie necessarily, but of Aaron Ralston's story? Because this is this is a true story. This actually happened in May of two thousand three. When did you first become aware of what happened to Aaron Ralston? I think when the trailer for this film dropped. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's when a lot of people became aware of it. Yeah. How about you, Ken? Was this on your radar? Uh, I remember the story. I I was one of those. I remember every morning before going to school, we'd have like the Today Show would be on in the background <laughs> as I was getting ready to go or leave the house. And I do remember this being a story around that time on the morning shows. So Probably I, I brought to you by Matt Lauer. Hard... There's a flash from the past. Exactly. Yeah, either Matt or <laughs> I can't. Uh, Katie might have still been. Katie Kirk might have still been there at the time. Um, one of them would have been covering the story. And it's hard It's hard to forget this particular story. Uh, I don't remember all the details of the interviews, but I do remember the story hitting the news. And this is real, like, morning show yes. fodder kind of stuff like it's it's not surprising at all that that happened um but you're right it was kind of everywhere and as proof of that i'll tell you my experience with this story which was in sports illustrated and i, I sent you guys the article before we turned the mics on but um there's a stretch in middle school when not we had sports illustrated subscription and i read it every week and you know bring me ages like 11 to 14 that this was happening but this occurred right in that window so i because it was written about in sports illustrated i knew about it then and it was written about by rick riley and at the time, in you know the late two thousands or early two thousands rather, Rick Riley had a column in the back. He had it was, he had the back page column of Sports Illustrated. So it was the very last page of Sports Illustrated. It was Rick Riley's column, um, which I always read first because I really enjoyed his column, and it was my favorite part of uh, any issue of Sports Illustrated. And in May of two thousand three, he wrote a article called "Extreme Measures," where he described in graphic detail what happened to Aaron Ralston and what Aaron Ralston had to do to free himself from his situation. And reading that at 13 kind of broke my brain. And uh, I never forgot some of the details of reading that article. And um, six and a half years later, when I found out that Danny Boyle was following up his Oscar winning, best picture winning, best director winning movie, Slumdog Millionaire with a movie about Aaron Ralston. uh, I was very excited because I thought Slumdog Millionaire was great and uh, again, this the details of this story broke my brain. So I was this is a movie that I remember following very closely through its production and like frequently Googling it in like the six months before it was released just to see if there's any more, any news about it or any trailer drop or any, uh, you know, early reviews or anything like that. And it's it, it's certainly not the first movie that I did that for, but it's one of the first movies that I did that for. I was like highly, highly anticipating this because of uh, Rick Riley's article about Aaron Ralston Sports Illustrated. Uh, which brings me to the trailer, which I also sent you guys before we recorded. Um, one of my favorite trailers <laughs> ever, really? I think. And that's, that's partially because of what I just said. Yeah, that's partially because of what I just said, where I was like anticipating this movie so much, uh, having enjoyed Slumdog Millionaire and having liked this story, I guess, or like been amazed by this story or whatever. And... Um, I mean, you can Google the trailer, but it has a, a band of horses song that I think is really good. And it has like um, some blurbs from its debut, like reviews, blurb review blurbs from, I guess, its debut at Toronto or Telluride, where it's like pretty highly praised, particularly James Franco's performance. Calling it one of the best ever. Yes, I needed. I, I couldn't find that actual review because <laughs> I was I remember that. I remember that blurb saying it's one of the greatest performances of all time, which I like this performance, but I think yeah, it's, that's, a little, a little, it's a little bit anally derived. Yeah. 
and I've like tried to find the larger review just so I can get context for that remark. I haven't been able to find it actually, but that is yes, a pull quote in the trailer. Um, I had to watch this trailer a dozen times in college in my dorm room <laughs> waiting for the movie to come out. And um, the other thing that happened in the lead up to this movie was the uh, I guess the hype out of I think it debuted Toronto, but also played Telluride. I may have that backwards. It may have debuted Telluride and played Toronto, but regardless, uh, there was press about people passing out or like needing medical attention uh ken let me ask you this as a realist do you think that's accurate reporting or do you think that is maybe a bit played up by the studio in order to generate buzz for the movie uh well it's interesting because some of the some of the sources covering that i'm not sure how much of that is the studio kind of behind that or, or poking it. So trying to, to build more attention. Um, no doubt the studio probably would have enjoyed it. Um, I think I think by 2010, the media is such that we've just got a lot of people jumping on, you know, clickbait style headlines and stories. And one of them being, oh, this movie that's causing people to become ill and pass out. I mean, it's not new though. We've we've had this kind of story run in the news previously. The Exorcist. Yeah, the, I was just about to say yeah. the Exorcist or Jaws. Both of them both yeah. of them caused reactions for audience members. So, knowing that, I think that might be inspiring some of the stories that are coming out of the, the film fests. And with the with the Exorcist specifically, they did reveal later that um no one can verify that that happened that was dredged up by the the uh, marketing team so yeah. right yeah and this is also you know uh oscar campaigns as a machine by 2010 yeah. like it's it's been a machine for a while so like they know what they're doing they know they have a movie by danny boyle who just won best director and best picture two years ago they know they have james franco who's like whose career we can talk about but was kind of peaking around this time and we can we can talk about that more um and they know they have a far release prestige movie with an unbelievable true story and a powerful lead performance. So like they, they got Oscars on the mind and like no press is bad. Well, that's not true. No, no press, not, not no press is bad press, but like this is the kind of good. I was press gonna say, this this movie use. comes out a decade later. The the press is not helping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, we talk about this too, but I mean like, you know, uh, I think people responding that intensely uh, speaks to the intensity of the movie or the ostensible intensity of the movie of the verisimilitude of the events depicted and that kind of thing. So like that kind of press is good press, especially when you're in I'm, an Oscar campaign. So I'm you know. curious though, how many people may have been put off by that kind of, uh, that kind of news story headline, because I know for a fact, for example, my wife was not interested in seeing this movie back then and she wasn't excited about watching it with me this time around either. Because she knows the story and she's she's yep. aware of like the headlines and people's reactions to the movie, it didn't make her want to watch it. How about you, TJ? Were you aware of the headlines for this movie as on you know, the people passing out headlines and that did that affect your viewing experience as you watched it in twenty? Oh yeah. Um and I, this is actually kind of a thing that takes away from my enjoyment of the movie, I think, is I remember distinctly sitting in the main theater of the Tivoli um with a couple friends of mine and just sitting there going a when's he gonna get stuck b when is the arm cutting happening and so it becomes this it's almost i don't want to use the word gimmick because it actually happened and gimmick sounds cheap but it was very much this like there's a money shot in this and yeah you're you're kind of tense the entire time but yet you know exactly what you're gonna get um, and I think it does, 
in a sense, it's a movie that needs to be seen multiple times because you need to get that shock out of the way the first time, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. And I agree with basically everything you said that, like, we, we could talk about the opening 15 minutes before he gets trapped. But, like, I'm so fa- I'm so fascinated by that opening 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes. Because, like you said, TJ, anyone sitting down to watch this probably knows the story they're getting. And so you are waiting for him to get stuck, which happens about 15 minutes in. And you're waiting for him to free himself, which, again, happens in the last 15 minutes. So, like, I, I guess I'm fascinated by the decisions they made of, like, how long they want to bring the story before he gets stuck. Because, you know, you're kind of just... Again, the audience is anticipating it the entire time. It's like, how long are you going de- to de- deny them that? Right. And again, in this movie, it's about 15 minutes. And then again, how much story do you want to tell after he frees himself? And I actually was just listening to – I was re-listening to the Blank Check podcast because they did they did Danny Boyle early this, earlier this year. So they had a 127 Hours episode in like April or something. And uh, they were talking about how there's, a, there's an alternate ending that like extends the movie a lot more beyond what they show where he actually like – tracks down clumsy posy and like goes to her door like we see in that fancy sequence and like so like the movie tries to resolve that storyline a little bit but like it, it goes on for way too long and danny boyle's like this doesn't work let's just let's just cut yeah, it so, here you know basically once he gets in the helicopter it's yeah, unnecessary so and in the words of aaron ralston yeah. this isn't working let's cut it here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so that's that's good but my, my point is, like, I'm, I'm I'm interested by, like, okay, the filmmakers have this fascinating story to tell. Or I, I think it's a fascinating story. But, like, where do they start it? Where do they end it? And to TJ's point, how much do you give them before you get what the audience is really anticipating, which is him getting stuck? And, you know, how long until he cuts out his arm? Because he actually does it, like, there's, like, three stops and starts yeah. with the arm cutting. He, he stabs himself once at about the midway yeah. point, like, the mid, midway through the movie. Then he, like, starts cutting a little bit in earnest about an hour in, but then he doesn't, like, really, really, really do it till about 15 minutes left, about an hour 15 into the movie. By the way, I haven't said yet what this movie is. Uh, Aaron Ralston was a hiker in 2003. He was hiking Blue John Canyon in Canyonlands, Utah. He fell, a boulder fell with him, and his, a boulder uh, pinned his right arm against the canyon wall, and he could not move and could not free himself, and he was there for the titular 127 hours, and then on the brink of death, cut his own arm off with a pocket slowly and freed himself and lived to your point it's over time (laughs) he's not just doing this quickly so and and he lived and that's what this movie is the movie is 93 minutes of that which is incredible i think um okay can we talk about that first like 15 i mean i mean any other comments before i dive into like the story proper nope no i think let's just get there because the movie does a pretty good job of actually getting us to that moment i think Right. Uh, the movie opens with, like, morning of. Uh, Aaron basically waking up and, like, packing his shit and, like, heading out to go on this bike ride hike situation in Canyonlands, Utah. And uh, I like that. Uh, actually, the, the opening images is what, TJ? Do you remember what the opening images are? Well, there are the there are several. Over? They're kind of tripartite across the screen. And um, there yes, are, are several images of digital images. <laughs> Stock it, stock footage almost of crowds and celebrations, sporting events, groups of people, time lapse of the city. Yeah, yes. we see athletes, marathon runners, sports fans, and then yeah, commuters, like the groups of people. What do you think they're going for here, Ken? Uh, well, on the one hand, I did appreciate the the 
the inclusion of the athletes, the runners, um, That's true, uh, yes. comparing it obviously to this guy who's not outwardly seemingly the most athletic. I mean, he, he's obviously athletic. He goes hiking, climbing, biking. He certainly thinks himself yeah. as athletic. Um, yeah. But he's not like a football player, baseball player. And all of the people that we see uh, earlier, besides the marathon runners, we see people in like team sports and we see people together. As opposed yes. to this lone big crowd, this lone wolf, this, this lone wolf character this lonely, yeah. whose story we're about to see. And then we, you know, see all that stuff over the open crowds, and then cut to Aaron alone in his apartment as he's gathering his shit, ignoring phone calls from his sister, his sister telling him to call his mom back, ignoring calling his mom back, and then just going out by himself. Uh, drives out in the middle of the night and then passes a group of bikers who are again in a group of people, and he like passes them, and there's a big. Uh, pointed shot where, like, in slow motion, he kind of gives them an incredulous look, like, I'm alone, you guys are with people, what's what's your problem? I'm doing it way better than you are. Um, I bring all this up to say, I don't think it's, like, completely subtle what they're doing, but I do like what they're doing, you know? Um, TJ, I'm imagining you watching this at the Tivoli with the typical older crowd at the Tivoli and or Praza Flotnack, and them, them like, going, like, ooh, because <laughs> they get it, <laughs> and... <laughs> You, you never seem to like that whenever the crowd's like, ooh, I get it. But I don't I, I don't gotta, recall there being... I am ooing at the screen, because I, I do get I it. I don't recall there being audible oohs. Had he said, I've been stuck for 127 hours, then there would have been, <laughs> for sure. But uh, to, your, to your point, it is a bit like civilization, nature, together, alone, yes. team sports. Shots. <laughs> yeah wide shots of Canyonlands USA and there's not a not a not a person in mm-hmm. sight it's just a big wide vista of landscape nature yeah. uh where are the people there's only one and he's alone um it's, again it's I don't... actually interesting you mentioned that when he first arrives early or like late night or early morning whenever it first arrives he says take a nap there are several other vehicles parked around where he's parked but yeah. we don't see any yeah, it's like a little campsite. Yeah, we don't see anybody else we don't see any of the other campers we don't see him interact with anybody he just arrives. Assumedly, there are other people around, but he's off on his own immediately. As soon as he wakes up, he literally on the bike, on his way. The only interaction he the only interaction he has is with his own digital video camera, which he like speaks to as like a vlog, basically. And I that that apparently is real. Mm-hmm. Like that tape exists. You know, Aaron Ralston did tape himself before and during his predicament his captivity here and i think very 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 few people have actually seen that tape basically aaron himself the people he was leaving tapes for danny boyle and james franco and that's close to the end of the list i think but like it makes me wonder like who was he making that for you know like which which time it's a good question uh before before he gets stuck when he's just like documenting his journey he's like we're on the road it's friday night uh-huh. this is 2000 me the music and the darkness to your point, it's 2003 you know, so it's pre youtube yeah that's an extremely common thing now right. in 2023 but a guy in 2003 like who's he making that for because he's a loner allegedly so like i don't know um no but it is, a, it is a key point because that's his interaction with theoretically that's the interaction he's comfortable with with others He's going to record himself, and if anybody watches it, that's how they can interact with him. He doesn't answer. I mean, we see him from the beginning, even if he's home. He doesn't answer the phone when his sister's calling him, trying to reach out to him. He doesn't call his mom back. She's left a voicemail message. In fact, his sister's harping on him to get back to his mom. His sister, Lizzie Kaplan. Yes. S- sister voice. Who's probably on set for three days. No, I was three hours. Say, not very, she's camping on set for very long. Yeah, Lizzie Kaplan voicing his sister and Kate Burton voicing and playing his mother on screen. Kate Burton being the daughter of Richard Burton. 
Oh, wow. Caesar himself yeah. in uh, Cleopatra. Yeah. Um, so these things in these opening 15 minutes, like I said, uh, a lot of contrast of like stock footage of lots of people versus Aaron by himself. Um, civilization versus nature, as TJ said. Um, lots of shots of water. Like lots of pointed shots of his water bottle filling up in the sink. Anytime he takes a sip out of his camelback, like it's that nice in the shot inside the tube of the camelback as the water like comes towards you, which will later be his pee. Um, I like this stuff. Uh, again, it's not like subtle and it's a bit obvious what it's doing, but I at least can recognize what it's doing. And like, I feel like some of the movies we watched recently, I'm kind of not really on the movie's wavelength and like not getting why this scene is here or what the purpose of this or that is. And like, Basically, every second of this movie, I get what it's doing, and I get what Danny Boyle's going for, and maybe I just find that refreshing, or am I just a simpleton? What do you think, TJ? That's a that's a false binary choice there. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> fair, fair enough. I I mean, I, I hear you. I see what you're saying. That's something for me, though, that's a little... I don't want to say I check out, but I'm not super engaged by that because I think it's signposting so clearly that it's not very engaging yeah. to me but that's just my two cents that's fair and this this might be like honestly where your taste and my taste diverge a little bit because like i kind of i like when movies are like this and i like when movies do this and i feel like you don't which is fine you know but what do you think anything i mean it's signposting and you said you don't like it so i feel like i like when movies are signposting yeah i i don't know i find just in general with this movie that it is uh it's pretty simple and lacking in in yeah. complexity, which is usually something that I'm looking for a little more, if that's fair. But. That's fair. So he gets stuck around the 15-minute mark, and I like the sequence where he gets stuck because, as, as we both said, as all three of us have said, the audience is anticipating it from the opening credits, basically, pr- presumably. And when it finally happens, it happens so quickly and so like unceremoniously you know there's not like a big dramatic you know score or anything like that he just kind of falls and just kind of happens i don't even know if there's any score at all actually it's actually very quiet and like he kind of just like lands looks at his hand kind of like incredulously like numbly like did this really just happen kind of thing and when it first happens, it kind of stays in like either a close-up or a medium shot. You don't really see a wider picture of his predicament. And we get pretty immediately the yep. title card about 17 minutes yep. into the movie that just says 127 hours. Basically, as soon as the titular 127 hours begins, when that clock starts, we get the title card that says yeah, 127 it, hours, which I think is it pops up, extremely It pops effective. up on the canyon wall as soon as, he, as soon as he's settled, basically at the bottom, with his yes. arms stuck. That's... Uh, I'm a sucker for late title card drops. Uh, I think we all love The Departed dropping 20 minutes in. Um, this one's an all-timer for me. I think this is an inc- incredible title card drop. Again, uh, maybe, maybe I'm just easily impressed, but... Uh, no, because it uses... Makes, I, think it makes I mean, it's, And, yeah, and it, it highlights the element of the movie that is, at least on the surface, about time. Um, yeah. So, I don't know. I liked and it. I, I also like the shot when he sort of releases a primal scream and then you get this like extreme zoom out that's up the next to say, yeah. God's eye where ain't nobody around. <laughs> right. That's, again, an insanely effective shot 
for me. Uh, like I said, like the, when he first gets stuck, it's close-ups or at most a medium shot where you can't really get a sense of like how fucked he is. And then just before that shot, TJ, there's a shot from above that's like maybe five feet above him, and you can see how big the boulder actually is. And it's the first time you get a sense of how big this thing is of like, oh, no, he's not going to be able to move this. And he's like stuck, stuck. And then like maybe 10 seconds later, they get that shot where, like you just said, it starts above him, right above him, and just zooms out. And like... It zooms out and shows, like you just said, the God's Eye shot and showing you how there's no one around for miles, no hint of civilization anywhere, and how small he is in this grand vista. But also, like, it's so quiet, as I said. Like, you don't hear anything, even though he's screaming. Like, we don't, we long no longer hear his screams. And also, that shot holds for so long. And it's just like, how, how, every second they hold that shot, it just, you get, a, a greater sense of how fucked he is and again i think that shot's incredibly incredibly effective if not a little obvious i feel like i keep having to say that like i don't know but that works i what do you think ken i like that shot and he but my only problem is he uses some of those kind of god's eye shots or really really wide wide shots of the landscape several times throughout the film and several times it feels like kind of b-roll like the storm rolling in at times it seems mm-hmm. overly digital mm-hmm. and overly kind of overly done um and it distracts me a little bit i don't love that i love the initial that initial shot you're talking about when he's screaming the camera pans out and we very quickly lose the sound of his screams and then realize okay he's in this very relatively thin almost almost easy to to miss crack in the earth crevasse yeah 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 and there's nothing there's no one this this guy is the only the only people anywhere near him are probably the two people he left behind what an hour or two hours before that miles ago yeah yeah yeah. and he even like calls out their names as if that's gonna help christy and megan dude Mm -hmm. (laughs) what are you doing man (laughs) like they're, they're nowhere near you um so then he's stuck and for the next hour of the movie which is the bulk of the movie is just him stuck between a rock and a hard place, which is the name of his memoir. He does. And by the way, he gets a pass that he's the one person who gets to to title his autobiography that. That is very. It's it a was. very good title. No more. It's retired. The bit is retired. Yes. It's a very good title. Yes, it is. Um. So. Some things here. Uh, TJ, I think the the thesis of your piece that you wrote on this movie was that. Danny Boyle is handcuffing himself by telling just by virtue of telling the story in the first place. And so he, they do have to get creative to, I think get an hour worth of movie out of him just stuck next to a rock for, you know, five days. Um, some of the things he does, there's uh, a couple fancy sequences. One of which is like an actual honest to goodness fantasy where like something happens on screen that ends up being basically like a dream sequence, more or less. Uh, there's a sequence where he imagines himself going to a party that uh, Kate Mara and Amber Tamlin invited him to, and he's like missing out on by being stuck there. Um, there's some flashbacks to him and Clemency Posey being together. Uh, there's a brief flashback of him as a kid with his dad out in the canyons. Um, there's a few like, there's a like hyper speed shot where the camera tracks from him stuck in the tre- crevice all the way to his car where there's a Gatorade and an orange just sitting in the back of his truck. Which Maybe the most really effective shot. ad for Gatorade I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Dude, that Gatorade is sweaty. The orange just like a perfect shade of orange. I can taste that Gatorade. 
Uh, it has the old 2003 Gatorade logo, which I think was far superior than the current Gatorade logo. Tasted personally. better so back I, then, too. I agree. I've never wanted a Gatorade more in my life. It did taste better back then. Yeah. Yeah. Goddamn GMOs. Um, so I guess I'm building to a question of like, what do you think of all these things that Danny Boyle and and uh, Simon Beaufort, the screenwriter, are using to like extend this out a little bit? Like, how do you, how do you feel about this stuff? Uh, for me, so one of, one of the things is, well, I guess several of them are in his book, um, particularly the wish fantasy of kind of a flash flood coming and, and yeah. um, whisking yeah. the boulder away, which would have been really, really nice. Um, the rest of it, though, I, I remember when this film came out, a lot of people said about it, and I think I was impressed with this, too. Um, you know, look, look how good of a movie came out of this kind of impossible premise. And I think that's correct. But I also think it's sort of like, yes, but you're, you're praising self-imposed limitations that didn't necessarily have to be self-imposed. And I think Boyle's, um, reaction to that in a lot of ways is trying to make this as quick and frantic and kinetic as possible and the the fear seems to be that i don't want this to be boring this has to be entertaining the entire time and i think that that is kind of antithetical to the horror of the situation when you say there were self-imposing self-imposed constraints that didn't need to be self-imposed what what do you mean by that exactly this is a really weird question to to (laughs) posit against it but like did you have to make this movie and did you have to make this movie this way um I wonder if this would have been a better documentary, personally. Um, but it's a—I don't know—it's a little bit like a kind of <laughs> look how well I did on my own self dare, you know. I think a documentary would be effective, but you would not get the the effectiveness of being in it with him, like being on day three of five stuck in this rock, and like it, you would lose some of that. You know, I, I, don't but know. I don't think the movie actually gets that because you're only I'm not saying the movie should have been like five days long, but you're only in there for an hour and it kind of exhausts every trick in the bag of make this entertaining, make this entertaining, make this entertaining. And I, I think that you don't really necessarily feel that you're in it with him. That's uh, this is the biggest criticism I actually have for the movie. Boyle does such a good job of shooting the setting of the film, basically to the point that we understand the space he's trapped in better than Aaron Ralston probably did in real time, because unlike Ralston, the camera is never confined to just right right there attached to the boulder. The camera's kind of bouncing around throughout the cavern, throughout the, the canyon, Um and or the crevasse if if that's how you want to describe it and we're seeing different angles and different elements of this crevasse that that ralston's not like we we he's very he's he's stuck he's constrained to this one specific space he cannot move beyond and, and Boyle does a pretty good job of emphasizing that early on he drops the knife if you'll recall at one point mm. and he's got to yeah. use his he's got to reach with his foot and then eventually has to use a stick and use his foot to hold the has stick. To hold the stick with yeah, the toes, yeah. To go down and, and manage to pick back up the, uh, the the little knife, and that I think does a really good job of emphasizing how confined he is. But yet, then the rest of the 
the time spent in the crevasse, the camera's kind of all over the place. And so we kind of I think it's pronounced crevice, Ken. Crevice. We're in America. Uh, yeah but we can be as fancy as we want crevasse crevice the the insane sport of rock climbing and and all that shit so i'm gonna go with the europeans and the the point being these guys this guy is is stuck here and i don't really feel i'm stuck so by the time Mm. we get to his extreme decision while i understand it i'm my initial reaction is like no 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 oh no please just what no <laughs> I, I get that i guess i kind of feel differently though um i i definitely do feel stuck and tj i guess to your point which is that it's only an hour i feel an enormous amount of catharsis when he actually frees himself like an enormous sigh of release when he frees himself despite it quote unquote being only an hour and ken to your point I, I, I know what you mean that like it is showing you different angles so it may not feel like we're in it with him but like Every angle we show, he's still stuck to that rock. You know, like there's no reprieve by showing us a different angle. Like I actually feel more stuck the more angles of it I see, maybe. So I don't know. Like I understand both of your criticisms or why this isn't working for you, but like I see what you're saying, but also I feel the well, opposite. Like it's working pretty well for me, actually. I guess, I guess I guess what I'm saying is the the that shot that you're talking about, I probably would have verbally reacted to him the first time when he kind of actually disconnects himself from himself falls backwards Mm -hmm. and for the first time is staring back at the scene if that's the first time i got a full a full shot of how big the boulder is relative to his arm and the space he was standing in i probably would have verbally reacted with a sigh or a gasp or something as opposed to i know exactly what this looks like because we've already seen it multiple times over the last hour we haven't seen it without him in the frame, though. It's True. the first time we're seeing the boulder with, with him not there with it, you know? Except for a little tiny little bloody stump <laughs> to the right of the boulder, which is still there. Um, Ken, there's a lot of emphasis on the water bottle. Um, the first time he takes a drink, it is a close-up of him holding it between his legs and closing the lid extremely yep. tightly, um, which is kind of a kind of hanging a lantern on i mean obviously everyone's saying okay he's gonna be stuck here for a while and he needs to conserve his water best he can um so he needs to make sure he gets it lid on tight and then it's kind of setting up for later when he is a little careless doesn't put the lid all the way on sets the bottle down just his contact and then loses half of his remaining Which, water basically how do you feel about all the water um, shots? i i some of some of them i think stylistically for example some of the the focus or, or the um I guess it's partially digital, but some of the shots of the perspiring water or the water in the bottle, it's like, it's a bit much for me. That said, I completely forgot about the moment he stumbles and drops the water bottle briefly mm-hmm. and loses yeah. the water. And that that is a really yeah. effective moment because my initial reaction was entirely on this watch. Oh, shit. Like, you just, <laughs> yeah. how much how much of your life did you just cut cut off right there? Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and that's um, precisely what he says in his memoir uh, when he spills that is that at first it was like oh no the water and then on second it was like that's maybe twelve hours of my life or something like that, um, which right. I thought was yeah. was a pretty effective way to conceptualize that as well. Yeah, I think I think the emphasis on the water leading up to that moment is key, and I think it pays off because. That is like that is the one thing we know. Even if you've never been in that situation, 
you can go longer obviously without food but the water is supposed to sustain him so he needs an intake of some kind of liquid he needs fluid um, and every every second counts can every second counts in a very short period of time <laughs> Particularly, that's he, when he drops the water bottle. He's it comes shortly after his last uh, video update, when he's predicting he's got until pretty much the next evening. He's suspecting, mm. and immediately your thought goes to, "Well, there goes the next evening," except for except for the fact that he does he did um, think ahead to start uh, urinating into the camelback, so he still does have fluid intake. Whether he realizes he's going to have to go there at the time he he does it. Um, I think he's he's hoping for a, a rescue. He's hoping from for an ex machina moment uh, before he gets there. But I could be wrong. Doesn't he start cutting his arm off like Wednesday morning? So he doesn't actually make it to Wednesday evening. He gets that's when he, some aid by stabs, then. That's when he stabs. Maybe when he stabs himself. I don't know. I don't. I don't know the exact time. Um, I was just curious. But yeah, because initially, initially he's already determined. By the way, that that hand is pretty much gone. Certainly, the fingers have lost all. Oh yeah, like his his first video update. Yeah. He said it's been without circulation for twenty four hours. So I think that's pretty yeah. much gone. So you uh, know, two details. That was like on on Monday when he said two that. details from the book. Um, first, when he starts peeing in the Camelback, he says that he wishes he had thought of that sooner, because his earlier pees were clearer. And that those mm-hmm. peas Makes are sense. very orange brown and stinky, and so he has to wait for them to cool off, and then it separates. Um, so he's able to actually drink the stuff on top, <laughs> and uh, it, mm, uh, and then the other one was uh, he one time when he was trying to saw his arm, he slips and pokes it into his effed up thumb, and he says it like kind of popped and let out a. Pfft that smelled horrible. Um, I can imagine it's rotting, decaying yeah, flesh. Yeah, <laughs> like, just a, like three days decayed, four days decayed. Yeah. I mean, he does think yeah, it is. They tough. do show. They emphasize. Boyle emphasizes the shot. Only after, like, I think it's as early as Monday or early Tuesday, he first applies the tourniquet to his arm. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even yeah, maybe even Sunday. Like yeah, maybe day. even Sunday. Yeah. Like he's very quickly thinks to cut off blood flow to that arm entirely, and that is obviously allows us an idea of where he's going to start uh, cutting um, once he gets to that point. Because initially he's also, you also have to remember he's using a, at this point, very dulled multi-purpose like Swiss army knife. It's not actually Swiss army knife. Not yeah, a Swiss army knife. Cheap, like a, yeah. Cheap like a Swiss army yeah. knife knockoff. Came free with a flashlight and as he says. Yeah. He, and it's dull. And the flashlight was a piece it's of shit dull too. because he's been using it for a couple of days trying to chip away at the, the edge of the, uh, the boulder itself. And so he's using yeah. a dulled little blade to stab and then kind of cut through himself. And it's, uh, I wonder how many listeners we've lost, by the way, the number of times we've brought that. <laughs> TJ, you've referenced his memoir, multiple times now do you have a tj's literature corner you want to bring up anything else from the memoir you in bring america up? we call it the memoir um i listened to well in, in burn after reading uh <laughs> john malkovich calls it a memoir to tilda swinton so that's why i was who'd want to read that um yeah i uh listened a book a memoir to it the audiobook because whenever i listen to someone's autobiography or memoir i like to see if they read it i, I just feel like it adds something um Here's what it added, boredom. Uh, Aaron Ralston, amazing guy, did some things I couldn't do. Not a great reader, not a great storyteller. 
kind of sounds like a little bit of a shallow person, <laughs> but um, the the movie follows the memoir pretty closely. There's a lot of stuff in the memoir that doesn't make it into the film having to do with the mechanisms going on behind the scenes to try to find him, particularly with his co-worker, um, a good friend of his and his mom, um, and that they actually, the Germans who find him were told by the Rangers, like, hey, there might be a guy stuck out there, just so you know. And then oh. that's why they were so quickly able to get a helicopter to him also was they had a lot of people kind yeah. of deputized in that area. Um, and then it does go further into like getting into the hospital and the surgeries and business like that. Um, I don't know that it adds like a whole lot that you wouldn't get out of the film, but I just was curious. So I read it. All right. Well, let me just uh, randomly insert a few other things I just want to comment on. Um, we already mentioned Kate Marr and Amber Tamlin as two hikers he encounters before he gets stuck. And we're saying before we turn the mics on that <laughs> James Franco is really creepy. <laughs> and like, I feel like these scenes don't shy away from his creepiness because he does initially approach them with his sunglasses on and like a bandana covering his face. And he's really creepy and they're creeped out by him. And then he takes his bandana off and takes his sunglasses off. And like the movie kind of implies he's less creepy in this now that he's done that. But like, I think the three of us agree. He's still it's, pretty creepy. It's not the biggest improvement. <laughs> the, just the look on his face, the grin he's got when he takes the, the bandana down. Yeah. Um, he makes reference yeah. to the, no, sorry about the Friday the 13th, uh, get up or, or thing. Yeah. Child killer look. Pulls, yeah, yeah. He pulls the bandana down and then he's got that kind of like, kind of, I don't know, this, this untrusting, just smile spreads across his face that I'm like instinctively I don't feel that much better just because now I know what you look like I feel like the bandana probably wasn't all that yeah. that worse off and TJ you can correct me but I believe in real life he actually did encounter two hikers like this but like he didn't take them to a swimming hole and like spend the afternoon with them he just like showed them some basic climbing moves and then they went their separate yeah. waves is but, that yeah, well, right yeah um I yeah, I think okay. this movie, though, this movie comes out in 2010, and it's at the height of, like, Francophilia. So I think I think the movie mm -hmm. is actually trying to coast on what popular culture once perceived as Franco's uh, charm, charisma, and good looks. I think it's creepy in 2013 oh, yeah. when you know that he Instagrams 17-year-olds to meet him in hotel rooms. I think it's creepy then. It's certainly creepy watching it now, given that James Franco's like some behaviors come out that like is, I don't know, not okay. <laughs> like this, I don't know, I don't know how to say it. Like, yeah, it's uh, I I wouldn't want to be hanging out with him. I guess is just the the polite way I'd say it. But um, yeah, even even then, like it's uh, I I think that maybe the biggest ask of the movie for me is like that these two girls would be charmed by him and like want to hang out with him and not just like immediately be like, hey, thanks anyway, but uh, we're gonna go this way. You should go that way, but. Whatever, not the big deal. But I bring them up not to talk about how creepy James Franco is, but because um, I like this plot point where they invite him to a party later that night. And so, and then like there's a fancy sequence where he is stuck to the boulder and imagining himself instead at that party in like a bit of like a sliding doors kind yeah. of moment. And it gives you in, it, in the scheme of things, it's a very like, slight thing to like miss a party when like your life is now in danger but like it gives it like an immediate thing he's missing out on you know like there's an immediacy to oh it sucks that i'm stuck here because i could be somewhere else having a beer possibly getting laid whatever but like oh no now i'm here instead and that like 
that feeling kind of grows and grows and grows and grows and grows the longer he's stuck. It starts with like, a, oh no, I'm missing this party too. Oh shit, I'm going to miss every other experience I could possibly ever have for the rest of my life because I'm going to die here. But like, I kind of like that that's like, that's there. Because again, it gives you like an immediate, kind of like an immediate stakes, I guess. Very, very low stakes in the scheme of things, but just kind of like, it starts here and then just gets worse. What do you think about that, Ken? Uh, I'm, I'm actually more struck by the fact that when he encounters them, it's it's almost such in it's a meeting in passing and they do invite him to the party i assume they exchange some kind of contact info and as he once they part the camera stays with kate mara and amber tamlin for a moment and they specifically interact or discuss whether or not they think he's actually going to show up or not and I feel like that actually drives home again what will what he'll come to the realization later on. If only more people know where you're going and where to expect you, when to expect you, that kind of thing, you know that there's going to be people theoretically out looking much sooner. Because while my understanding from the book is that they were probably starting to search for him sooner than he thought they were, um, yeah, the reality is. He he knows that the only time he's expected any place isn't until like Tuesday, and so yeah. the fact that he didn't commit one hundred percent, yes, I will be there no matter what, to that Sunday night party. If I don't show up, yeah, call the exactly. cops. <laughs> like the idea that uh oh, there's also a missed a missed opportunity and moment, and there are these people who are enjoying their lives, and he could be there, but instead his is potentially yeah. ending. Because of his selfishness, he's not out enjoying his life with these people. He's instead uh, going to die here, potentially. I also um, want to mention, just because you bring up the, the party, the fantasy scene of the party, they describe there being a Scooby-Doo, uh, a blown-up like Scooby-Doo uh, like balloon or whatever, inflatable, inflatable. that's yeah, supposed yeah. to be at this party, and he pictures that in his fantasy. Uh, it scared the shit out of me. I forgot completely that at one point when he's hallucinating, there's a Scooby Doo yes, jump scare. Scooby Doo, right before he cuts his arm off, there's a jump scare with Scooby Doo, which Letterbox is coming later. Many Letterbox reviews <laughs> mention the Scooby Doo jump scare, like a lot of them. So you're not yeah. alone there. Um, TJ, the other thing I wanted to comment on before we get to like, you know the arm cutting off scene is the moment where he uh, has like a mini talk show. He does like a talk show bit where he interviews himself. He pretends he's on a morning show. Uh, I think this is super effective. And I think James Franco really shines here. And uh, it was featured heavily in the trailer that I already mentioned. I'm a big fan, big fan of, but uh, what do you make of this uh, sequence here? It's very, I mentioned before, it's very hard to talk about why acting works or doesn't work for one. Um, I really don't like this. Um, I and I don't like him I in it. Wouldn't. This yeah. is I, this is the part where I I really really see the cracks. I think in his performance, it's just so like kind of shouty and overdone for me. Um, I think it's very much he's really expressive, like over the top expressions in this sequence. Yeah, very expressive. And I, Little handy. I think it's very screenwritery also. Um, that it feels like a. Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, another, oh, crap, what do we do? We got to get this to 90 minutes without it being boring. Uh, oh, wouldn't it be cool if he... And I don't. for me, I, I, I don't like it. I don't think it adds much. Um, it's, a, it's a very self-reflexive moment because it's the moment where he kind of like admits to himself that he's to blame for why he's out here. And, you know, he calls him... He criticizes himself for like fancying himself a... What he says a like 
American superhero, a hard fucking hero, and it's because of that he didn't tell anybody where he's going. He's very self reliant, and like that was his fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Might literally be his fatal flaw. So like I, I like that aspect to it. Um, as I've said like four times already, it's obvious and it's not subtle, but I at least like get what it's doing, and I think it's doing it well. I I so, appreciate. I mean, I appreciate once it shifts tone. The by the end of his recording, um, I do appreciate once he's hit the introspection. And he's actually reflecting legitimately and genuinely. He goes straight from this bit where he's doing that into messages to his parents, basically yeah. apologizing for not like calling them back and like saying, I love you guys. I'll always be with you, et cetera. And like that also really worked. I guess I just don't really well. buy that he wouldn't have gotten there without that, that he needed the kind of sketch to get there. You know, well, I guess. I, did, did he mention in the book? Does he? Is this something that he actually did? Because I guess it comes down to personality. It's not in the book. If somebody, if yeah, somebody uses humor frequently and that's how people know you, I can see where you're trying to outwardly, if you're sending a message to folks, you're expecting somebody to find this or discover this at some point, possibly after you're dead. You might throw in a little humor so it's not to be quite so so depressed and so down, even for those who might find it, your family, your loved ones. Um, I can see where you might do something like that because I was I was questioning myself whether I would try to inject humor into a situation like this if I knew I had enough time to to provide some kind of message like that. But Ken, um, at your your I age, you wouldn't have known how to work the camera. That is true. That is one hundred percent accurate. I'd be I'd be on I'd just be carving into the rock. My message. Um, Ken's, do, Ken's doing show. a TV, a moving picture. <laughs> he's doing a TV bit. And he's a, Here we are on the Carol Burnett show, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's show the way. The Tonight on Lawrence crumbles. Welk, we got Aaron Ralston. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of like injecting humor in the situation, if you were in the situation, Ken, how many hours into your captivity would you try to masturbate? <laughs> Which is something Aaron Ralston tries oh, then, to yeah, do he tells it. in my least favorite season. Yeah, yeah that's a really... It, <laughs> he makes it three days in before he thinks to try that. It's awkward. That's an awkward scene and 100% in retrospect because it's Frank. Char, it's James Franco. And the way the camera focuses so intently on the paused shot of Kate Mara is just kind of... Un, yeah. It's just uncomfortable given what we're what the, mo- the rest of the movie is about and the tone you're... Su- you're hoping that the, the film will capture, and that takes you out of it. So it doesn't really work for me as a character moment either, because, and I'm not I'm not being funny here, but like he has to preserve all bodily fluids. Yeah, I was just about to say. Okay, this. yes, but that's that's actually what I'm saying is like it's unsaid in the movie, but like that happens very shortly before he starts to cut his own arm off. So it's almost saying like. His two choices are rub one out one last time and die because that would sap him of his life force and that would be it. His last end precious on bodily is, fluids. Is rub one out, or or he can take extreme measures and try to cut his own arm off and extricate himself from the situation. And he chooses the latter, but that was a binary choice choice of jerk off and die or zip back up. Also, and lift. that should it's have been on the poster. I think TJ's. <laughs> TJ's interpretation earlier. <laughs> it also comes off as a bit shallow that you're thinking in that moment he does stop himself to your point in that scene. He does. Yes. His motivation might be simply that, you know what, I don't want to die, as opposed to, no, this is inappropriate. Like 
His his mind his mind is solely okay, which isn't the worst. You're you're driven theoretically by a will to survive, but if he weren't in that situation, otherwise the suggestion is that's perfectly acceptable. They left him some some scantily clad video on his camera, so might as well use it for his own personal pleasure. So I, as I often do, I have the movie on mute as we're recording, and that scene actually just just happened. So I'll tell you exactly the sequence of events in the movie. Uh, he thinks about masturbating decides not to immediately after that is the scooby-doo jump scare to the point that it's maybe kind of implying that the hallucination of scooby-doo is what stopped him from <laughs> masturbating which is woo, read into that a little bit and then the very next sequence is him uh having the memory of being at like uh utah jazz game with clumsy posey and then he decides and then he sees the vision of like his future kid and cuts his arm off so like sequence events masturbate and die but he's stopped by the vision of Scooby-Doo, then thinks about Clemency Posey and having a kid, and decides, you know what? Uh, <laughs> how graphic should I get here? <laughs> like, the, the, you got yourself in this. The decision of what I was about to do might be better served making a child away from this canyon as opposed to just here in the canyon and then dying. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to do instead. Please cut this out later. Um... One, good thing he was left-handed. And second, um, I would think that maybe he didn't actually follow through. Because imagine if you die and they find you and then your family's like, I wonder what he thought in his last moments. Oh, my God. Yeah, they find you and your zipper's undone and your dick's out. (laughs) Well, he died doing what he loved. <laughs> between then, then be between like, a rock and a hard place. Was this an autoerotic fixation scenario? Did he intentionally get himself stuck by this rock to really just pop up that orgasm intensity? One way or another, he was going to get his rocks off. <laughs> I'm not cutting this out. I'm leaving this in. This is gold. I'll, cu- I'll cut out part of it. <laughs> I'm going to cut out part of what you said, but I'm leaving the rest in. Okay. Um. What else do I want to say? Um, okay, well, Ken, if you wouldn't think to do that, if you're in the situation, uh, how long in the situation until you either try to cut your arm off or just lay down and die, do you think? When are you dead <laughs> in the sequence of events? Because as soon as I drop the knife on day one, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, was, like, I'm giving up at that point. Say, I'm not trying to fish it out with my foot in a stick. I'm I, dead when I drop the knife. What I'd like you? to think I'd try to get the stick. But I'm probably I'm I'm dead once the fluid is once I'm once I'm out of of water or any fluid even if I thought to use urine. Are you drinking your own pee? I, I I don't know. See, that's the thing. I'm waiting. It's like if I'm not if I'm the only way I'm getting out of here is if someone finds me. Do I want the last thing I consume to be my own urine? I might go with. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. TJ, how about you? When are you dead here? Or are you are you making it out? Are you going to make it out like Aaron did? I don't think I'm making it out of there. Um, I will say, in his book, he makes it sound like a much easier decision than I think it seems from the outside. In the sense that he, he even talks about, like, he did have a vision of a, a future son. And that he mm-hmm. took this, like... He didn't even really, once he got to that point, he didn't even really think like, oh, should I do this or not? He kind of just went into autopilot and like snapped his arm and it took him an hour to cut his arm off, which is insane. And he talks about it in the book like this is, my brain kind of took over and it was a last primal 
just urge to survive, almost as though he didn't have a choice, which was really interesting for me to hear about because still watching this, I go through that same thing, that the, the precise question you asked where it's like, would I be able to do this? At what point would I do this? And I don't think I could. I mean, I like don't like getting shots at the doctor. Um, so the idea of cutting my own arm off is especially one of the things that's really effective in this movie is the fucking operation noise when he hits his nerve. <sighs> yeah. That was gonna, that <gasps> when was the he next pulls the nerve. The very next thing I was going <sighs> to bring up. Yeah. Um, he literally rips so the nerve. Let's, <laughs> let's have a larger conversation about the amputation scene, uh-huh. right? Uh, which is what allegedly people were passing out during in Toronto and Telluride and people were writing about that. Uh, I knew that when I went to go see it in theaters. Uh, again, Rick Riley's article in Sports Illustrated goes into extreme detail of what he does, how he has to break his arm mm-hmm. twice and cut through this and that. So, like, I, I know what's going to happen. And me, like most audience members who probably know the story, is they are also anticipating this scene happening, which begins about 75 minutes in. It only lasts, like, two or three minutes. But I remember having very sweaty palms throughout most of the movie anticipating this and as we said there's like a few like head fakes where it stop he stops and starts a couple times about 45 minutes in about an hour in um i believe they built a anatomically correct arm the special effects team just built an arm that they you know positioned angled his so- shoulder such that it looked like it was actually his arm and just i believe they just handed james franco a knife in a tourniquet and said go for it cut yourself free from this and they just film that from different angles and i think they only needed one take i think they only used one arm and i think it took him in while filming it took him about 20 minutes or something like that and again they cut that down to about two or three for the movie and uh i think it's excellent i think it really works i think it plays i think it's intense the music is good james franco's performance in this scene is good or at least the editing makes it look like his performance is good i guess i'll say that like i think it's well edited to convey what it needs to convey and um, like I said, it's intense. It's visceral. Uh, the catharsis when he finally frees himself is immense as I'm watching it, even though I've seen this half a dozen times. Um, but to your point, the most intense sequence, the most the intense moment in that sequence, maybe the most intense moment in the movie is just a single music cue when he touches the nerve, which happens about three different times. Do you want to talk about that more? I'm Not really. Um, <laughs> just... <laughs> I, it's it's very very effective. Um, yes. Yeah, and I. It's so simple, but so. Effective. I one time wounded my arm. I have a scar here, right on the elbow. Um, You're pointing at your yes, elbow. Yes. Falling um, on a rocky pavement when I didn't have health insurance and I lived in Canada, and I went up to my room. And I was about to make a frozen pizza and watch Family Guy. And I really still wanted to do that. But I was like, dang, I really banged my arm up. Man, we used to be alive. Oh, yeah. We used to be alive. I know. What a night, no, what a night you were about no, to have. No, Man. I'm like, it's 530. We better wrap this up. <laughs> but, uh, so I took my undershirt off and I kind of just put it around there and and waited. Well, long story short here, um, lots of blood. Uh, later as I had gauze on it, parts of my arm meat would stick to the gauze and there was this just horrible ringing in my ears as I would take it off. Nowhere near what Aaron Ralston went through, but that's my reference point for like just this incredible fleshy pain there. And I could barely, barely handle that. So anytime he's hitting that nerve, it's, uh, woof. 
again, to quote the blank check guys, I assume they they did the research for like Aaron Ralston's actual firsthand account, but every time he touched the nerve, it was like his entire arm was on fire, mm-hmm. like dipping his entire arm in lava. Yeah, that's what he said. And again, in the movie, in the movie, it takes him, I think, three or four attempts. Like we hear again, it's just like a, a music cue buzzing sound effect every time. He t- like you said, an operation sound effect when he touches the nerve. I think it happens like three or four times. And again, the editing and James Franco's reaction really sells it. And um, my least favorite part of the movie is every time he touches the nerve. Um, but the rest of the arm, yeah, the rest of the arm sequence, I kind of like him okay with. Weirdly, <laughs> I definitely didn't. I didn't come near passing out. Um, I don't really love how much blood there is, but like I get it. <laughs> There'd be a lot of blood if someone were to do this. Can it, where are you at on this whole amputation? I, I I'm not wild about it. It's effective. I don't. I'm not ready to pass out or anything. But um, I knew what was coming, and I decided to sit through it. This is only the second time I'd watched this movie beginning to end. Um, I am it, I am struck by the fact that it's the kind of film that this is unquestionably a part of the film that sits with you. The fact that it takes up so little time out of the entire picture um, is is kind of startling on on uh, kind of post watch because my memory, especially because this is the whole reason yeah, people are watching. This is the whole reason. And my memories of this movie going back thirteen years are my feelings about the film in that scene. Watching that scene, that's Same. the overpowering yeah. reaction I had to the entire film, even though, like you said, it's a couple minutes of the movie. That's it. Um, but it's powerful enough. It's what sticks with you. Leaving uh, Once the credits start rolling, this is the scene that sticks with you. So um, I mentioned James Franco's performance during the scene. I guess I, I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about James Franco um, and his career and where this is his career. Then, then we can talk about the ending of the movie. Um he came up with Freaks and Geeks uh, in late two th- uh, early, early 2000s, so like in the Apatow sphere um, on a show produced by Apatow with Seth Rogen and uh, Jason Siegel. And I think that – I mean that show was like critically loved, but no, no one really watched. It was canceled after a season. But like people were like, oh, this kid's good. And then he gets yeah. Spider-Man, and he is um, Harry Osborn in 2002, 2005, 2007, um, which is – an enormous, enorm- three enormous, enormous hits makes him a big star. Or even though he's like, he, he's a supporting character in those. I think people were still like, this kid's got it. But like amidst that, they thought this kid's got it and tried to put him in some leading roles that didn't really work out. Like Tristan and He's Old. I remember that one from like 2004 or so. Um, Annapolis is another one where he was like a, you know, in the Naval Academy. That didn't really work out either. Like, so all his like leading man attempts don't really pan out. Um, and so after that, he kind of goes back to the Apatow well and like starts working with Judd Apatow again, but like not necessarily as a leading man, but kind of like leaning into the comedy and also kind of leading into like his inherent. Yeah, because he plays, because he's a really he plays himself guy. in, um, is it Knocked Up, right? This is the end. He plays himself in Knocked Up in like one yeah. scene, like a cameo scene. Then he's in Pineapple Express, which was not directed by Apatow, but produced by Apatow. And it's with Seth well, Rogen again and with Daniel Bryan, etc. He and Rogen wrote Pineapple Express, didn't they? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't have that in front of me, but, um, that was like a big deal. I'm pretty sure Danny Boyle cast him in this because of his performance in Pineapple Express, if you can believe Hmm. it. Um, actually real quick, I want to say that Danny Boyle was on the award circuit in 2008, 2009 with Slumdog Millionaire, and he was encountering Darren Aronofsky, who was promoting The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. And Danny Boyle was so struck by the wrestler and building a movie around like a single performance and a single actor that that kind of like, in you know, that's part of why he decided to take on 127 hours. Cause he wanted to make a movie like that, like the wrestler. And then watching James Franco on pineapple express was like, that's oh. my guy. That's the guy that's going to do this, which it makes me wonder if Franco ran into 
to boil it all during that circuit too because he was also he's also in Milk, which is 2008, right? He was in Milk. He was very nearly nominated for Best Supporting Actor in Milk, which was the same year as right, Brian Milk Express. So that was like a big yeah, He played opposite Penn. He played the boyfriend. He played Harvey Milk's uh, boyfriend in that. So he, he and that was his first I, – I, at least for me, that's the first time I remember seeing him in something um, dramatic or at least something prestige. prestige yeah. yeah. So that's that's a good segue. So again, he had he had freaks and geeks. People liked him. He had Spider Man. People liked him more. Leading Man didn't didn't think didn't work out. So he goes back to Apatow. And in the midst of going back to Apatow, so people like him again because he's working with Apatow and like it works. He's he's playing to his strengths. And at the same time, he's in Milk, which is a prestige movie. And people are like, okay, let's let's see if we can make this Leading Man prestige thing work again. And he's in this, and people love this performance at the time. It seemed, and uh, he's nominated for Best Actor. Uh, TJ, as you said, one of the reviewers out of Telluride said this is one of the great performances of all time, which, mm, yeah, I don't know. Um, he gets not nominated for this. Uh, he hosts the Oscars Ugh. the same year that he's nominated for Best Actor. He co-hosts it with Anne Hathaway. And as I texted <laughs> this week, uh, an all-time act of self-sabotage, but, if you ask me. I don't know so, what I don't know what the thought was behind this. He like I don't know if he froze up, if he was high. There were all kinds of there's all kinds of conjecture that night about what was going on. Because if I recall correctly, the the feeling watching it was that it was just it wasn't that there was one moment, it was like a slow motion train wreck throughout the whole evening, every time they were on stage. And Anne Hathaway seemed to be trying, but she was acting with like so, a cutout. <laughs> Uh, a few years later in 2012, when she wins Best Supporting Actress for Les Miserables, somebody commented about her performance in the I Dream to Dream scene. I have never seen someone so desperately alone since Anne Hathaway hosted the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny, can you say the way you said it is that Anne Hathaway was trying hard and James Franco was doing something else i think uh that's also my memory of this oscars because I, wa- I remember watching this and i think it was very bad for both of them because the anne hathaway reputation that she got after this is that she's like a tryhard theater kid and not cool and like that was kind of like her internet reputation for the next like decade include and kind of like crystallized when she began her oscar acceptance speech three years later with it came true in reference to the fact that her song was called I Dreamed a Dream. So <laughs> she was, again, kind of like the try-hard theater character this. And I think Anne Hathaway's great, and I don't I don't subscribe to that, but like that's just like the reality of how people saw her for a while. And James Franco was like this fucking weirdo who's just fucking weird and off-putting, because that's the best way I can put his Oscar-hosting performance is extremely off-putting. The only thing I distinctly remember is him coming out in a Marilyn Monroe dress and wig yeah. at one point and just like not selling nope. the bit at all, just being like, Hey, I'm James Frank, and I'm out here to dress, kind of thing. Like that's kind of the energy he's yeah. bringing to it. And well, to your point, the the reason she might get that reputation, I don't remember that being the effect or the response to Hathaway. It's just she's trying so visibly hard, in part because she's getting no help whatsoever from the person who's supposed yeah. to be her co-host. Yeah. It it would have been an easier night for her if she was hosting. Yes, for sure. right. But yes. because she's got someone else there, she's got to like amp it up. So she's trying way way too hard and he is doing the exact opposite he doesn't appear to be giving any any fucks whatsoever um yes and it just it it landed so horribly 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 off so i talked about this movie on another podcast a few years ago and during the research for that podcast i learned that this was the first time the oscar host was also nominated that same night since uh paul hogan 
which taught me two things. Number one, Paul Hogan once hosted the Oscars, and that's when like, it was like five hosts, yeah. kind of like a, a revolving door, like in the same night. Like a lot of people kind of were the MC, basically. And also, number two thing I learned: Paul Hogan was nominated for an Oscar, <laughs> which was best original uh, screenplay, best original screenplay for Dark okay. D. So. Yeah, um, yeah, that was um, a, that was a gimmicky hosting gig, I assume. Um, wasn't this? This was also. Correct me if I'm wrong. Some point during this evening, Billy Crystal makes an appearance during that Oscar ceremony, and I could be wrong. I thought that might. I think that's the year Crystal came out, and I don't remember what he was presenting or what he was going, what what he was out there for. But the 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 theater just. It launches itself into celebratory excitement because everyone's like, yes, oh, thank God, someone worth seeing on stage. <laughs> and then we also get the moment later in the later on in the evening, Kirk Douglas comes out to give out the Best Supporting Actress Award, which is somewhat awkward in its own sense, but everyone absolutely loves that Kirk Douglas is there on stage. And there's absolutely nothing worse that evening than what the hosts are trying to do, whatever that might be. So, like, there's just the the actual reaction from the live audience in the theater when you're watching the broadcast that night anytime anyone that they were clearly happy to see would come out they were just getting thunderous applause and reaction because those people look like they were suffering through this show i will say uh i don't remember billy crystal coming out during this oscars but i believe you because i believe he hosts the next yeah. year he comes back to host for the first time in like eight or ten years the year after this because uh, Frank Owen Hathaway were that disastrous. And they're like, we need to right the ship and put this in safe hands. And Billy Crystal is the safest hands you can put the Oscars in uh, at this time. So that's what they went with. Um, but okay, back to James Franco. After, I, I think he kind of hits an apex with this movie because it's, you know, uh, again, a Best Actor nomination. He is kind of back in people's good graces working with Apatow again. He's working with Danny Boyle. He's in an you know Oscar-nominated role in an Oscar-nominated movie, and then things get kind of weird after this. He doesn't capitalize on this at all. Uh, after this, he decides to attend every major prestigious film school in the country and starts uh, making really weird uh, small directorial movies. TJ, let me ask you this: You're a student of literature. You've read some William Faulkner. Are you aware and have you seen the movies where James Franco adapted, starred in, and directed uh, As I Lay Dying and The Sound and the Fury, two giants of Southern Gothic literature from the early 1900s? No, but he also made Child of God by Cormac McCarthy, and he cast himself Uh, as the poet Hart Crane, and he played Allen Ginsberg. And uh, I hate using... I did, in a movie called Howl. I hate using this word, but um, it reeks of pretension. I also hate using that word, and I also think it 1,000% applies here. Yes. Um, it's wild to me that James Franco in 2013, 2014, may, again, wrote, starred in, and directed adaptations of two giant William Faulkner novels, and no one cared at all. And they did not make a splash at all other than, like, hey, that's kind of weird that James Franco's doing this and no one else cares. Like, be- beyond me, curiosity, that was it. And so... He kind of had a down streak in the early 2010s and mid 2010s, and then kind of made a bit of a comeback with uh, the Disaster Artist, where he played Tommy right. Wiseau, and uh, he plays a kind of inept director <laughs> and directs the movie in which he plays an inept director, which 
read in whatever you want to read into that. And then he also is in Ballad of Buster Scruggs, where he gives... I, he at least sells the first-time line, which has become a big meme from the Battle of Buster Scruggs, where he has a noose around his neck and says, first time, to guy next to him. But other than that, uh, he hasn't really done anything since then. And as we alluded, some bad behavior has come out about him in recent years, and he's kind of gone away for a while. Um, and that's James Franco. Got anything on James Franco? Yeah, today? you're overlooking the best performance of his career. Which is? As Alien in Spring Breakers. Ah, oh, that's I right. I did overlook yeah, that I, I think uh, you thought I, I was setting up a joke, really but it. I'm dead serious about that. <laughs> I was 100% anticipating a joke there, but no, you're right. That is two years after this, mm-hmm. and it's a movie that people didn't seem to know what to do with at the time because it had like Disney stars and like scantily clad outfits and like a very overtly sexual movie. That movie's really fucking good yeah. though. And I know you're a big yeah. fan of it. I think people have kind of like come around on it in the last 10 years, but at the time people didn't know what to do with it. He should have been Oscar nominated for that. I think um, I agree. That's the best performance mm-hmm. he's given. And he, again, leaning into the inherent weirdness of James Franco, the inherent creepiness of James Franco, um, kind of like the, dangerous sexuality about him not to like uh, allude too much to like his bad behavior but like that works textually and uh contextually so uh, i agree good shout out harmony corinne's masterpiece spring breakers which is whoo that's a movie man <laughs> ken where are you on spring uh, breakers? i quite like it and to your point that, I think that is anybody... the shock of this podcast no offense i never what? would have guessed ken dusold was a spring breakers <laughs> fan I, is your favorite part the opening scene where it's a bunch of slow-mo of like women flashing their <laughs> while Skrillex plays? Is that your favorite scene? No, that is not my favorite scene. Um, <laughs> although it is if I've just watched uh, any of the Fast and the Furious movies, I assume. Um, because that's just a perfect continuation. If you're listening and you've not seen Spring Breakers, I will say it's easier to go back and rewatch that one after everything that's come to light about um, Franco's behavior on and off sets. Um just because it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make that any more difficult to watch. In fact, it kind of it just maybe lessens your impression of his his range as an actor. I don't know, but uh, it's it's an effectively um, off putting and creepy performance. Great double feature with High School Musical there, with uh, there Vanessa you go. Yeah, it's a great uh, great one two punch. Um, that's James Franco. Any other friends, th- thoughts on James Franco, Ken, before we move on to Danny Boyle? Cause I'm talking uh, about no, let's actually, I, I'm kind of interested in moving on to Danny Boyle. Let's talk about, because you've let's already highlighted what he's coming off. He's coming off of his big peak as a filmmaker. He is. So, well, we can, well, argue, we can from discuss a, that. From a financial so, and uh, awards receiving um, standpoint. As I said, um... The Blank Check podcast did a Danny Boyle series earlier this year, so they kind of I, I listened to a few of those episodes to kind of get a little bit of context for Danny Boyle's filmography. Uh, I believe his first movie was a movie called Shallow Grave, which uh, I actually watched for the first time earlier this year because the the Blank Check podcast very good. Um, you got uh, uh, the start of his collaboration with Uma Gregor. Very simple concept. It's a bag full of money movie, which you guys both know that I'm a big fan of. It's a Hey, three friends found this money with a dead body. Let's try to hide the dead bodies. We can keep the money kind of thing. And things don't go well. So that's that's up my alley. Uh, next movie he makes is Train Spotting, which I might argue is the the apex for him in terms of like um, that might be Actual his best quality. movie. Yeah. And, and yeah, but also like people were really curious what he was going to do next. The, the whole premise of the Blank Check podcast is directors who 
have an early movie that's like a huge hit and they're given blank checks for the rest of their career to make whatever they want to make. And like he that was his blank check movie. Like once he made train spotting, like people want to work with him and like let him do what he wants to do. Arguably, Slumdog Millionaire might have been a bigger blank check movie because like that's kind of an improbable four hundred million dollar grocer and an improbable best picture winner, but it still played and so maybe 127 hours is like the movie that okay you just you're on top of the movie world you just made a big hit one best picture one best director what are you gonna do next kind of thing um and he decides to make this which is interesting but like he's always struck me as a guy who doesn't really do like um he doesn't do paycheck movies it seems to me he always is like he needs to have some kind of connection to the material and like want to innovate somehow or challenge himself. Like this is certainly him challenging himself, TJ, to your earlier point about like the self-imposed constraints on this movie. So I admire that. And I think that his movies are always interesting. At least the ones I've seen, I've seen train spotting. I've seen shallow grave. I've seen some Moon, I've seen this. I've seen the first 10 minutes of 20, 28 days later, but not the rest of his it. films. His films are wildly far reaching in, in tone though, from movie to movie. Like he's got, if you ever look at his filmography, he went from train spotting. I think the next film he made was again with Ewan McGregor, but it's like a romantic comedy or something with Cameron Diaz. He's got the the beach with Leonardo DiCaprio, which is kind of an odd he does an odd beach. movie all in, yeah. in and of itself. Twenty eight days later, which is not a film that I've ever willed myself to sit all the way through, but is very very popular among um, people who love the horror genre. Um, then I think it's got, I think it's very good. Twenty eight days later is really really good. I, I haven't heard anybody say anything um, averse to it. Uh, as far as if you like horror films, it's supposed to be one of the best. He had Sunshine in there, which was like this. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It was this. It was like a sci fi thriller. People didn't know what to do with that, but it's been really reclaimed in the last like fifteen years. I feel like people like really like Sunshine now. I'm it, not as it should be. Me, if I recall correctly, right, Sunshine was written written by Alex Garland mm-hmm. and he later on he directs Steve Jobs right which was of course written had a great script from um, Aaron Sorkin he does really well when he's got a good script when he's got a good screenwriter and a good solid script behind the movie um, because he's willing to make just about anything I mean he made uh, the movie yesterday a couple of years ago do you think yesterday is a really good script Speaking I was just about to say that and um <laughs> Yeah, that it's it's a cute film, but it's not a great script. So that's what I mean. He yeah he, he needs yeah. a script. He needs a really solid script, and I guess that makes him more of a tech a technician, more of a um, a craftsman art, uh, director than an auteur. I think I think he always has interesting visuals, both cinematography wise and editing wise. And again, like I'm kind of like on the wave. He's he, there. Are, I always see intentionality. With his movies and sequences in his movies, like I kind of get what he's going for. He's going for something, and I kind of get what he's going for. So that's something I definitely appreciate about him. But you're right that like maybe his material could be limited by the strength of how it is on the page, possibly. Um, looking at his filmography again, I've seen Shallow Grave, I've seen Train Spotting. Those are both great. Uh, I've not seen The Beach. I I, I really like Some Dog Millionaire a lot. I know how you guys feel about it, but I think it's great. Um, I think this is great. Uh, I think Steve Jobs is great. Um, I think that's all I've seen, but like I really like all the movies I've seen, but there's also like some duds in there, mixed in there. I really like in the span of 02 to 07, he does 28 Days Later, Millions, and Sunshine, and I think those are all excellent films. If you haven't seen Millions, it's adorable, and uh, it's about little kids who find 
a bag of money thrown from a train yeah. and the one boy thinks that it's a gift from Catholic saints. Um, it's really good. He also did, uh, right after 127 hours, he did the National Theater Live's Frankenstein, which um, I don't know if there's any way to see it now, but it was um, a very, very strong production of that with Benedict Cumberbatch. Don't forget he directed the opening ceremony for the Olympic Games in London yeah. 2012. He in 2012. Yes, he did. Yeah. And yeah. the last thing of his I've seen that I'm a big fan of is Steve Jobs. Um, I, I know that for... That's a great movie, man. People slept on that when it came out, but it's great. For a while, it was in the hands of David Fincher, and there's a part of me that wishes we had a David Fincher yeah. Steve Jobs, but... The the Sony hack, that was a, a big thing in the Sony hack, was the disintegration of David Fincher making that movie. That's like, we got the details of that, yeah. But the one we end up with is still, I think, very good. I guess I should note that I, I believe Killian Murphy stars in both 28 Days Later and Sunshine. Yeah which is two movies he makes, as you just alluded, uh, in the lead up to 127 Hours. And I just recently read that Killian Murphy was his first choice for Aaron Ralston. And I'd be curious to know what that movie looks like. Um, I think Killian Murphy might be a more skilled performer than James Franco. And I say that in a post-Oppenheimer <laughs> yeah, world, that's... which where Killian Murphy uh-huh. gave one of the better lead performances I've seen in a few years in, as a Julius Robert Oppenheimer. Even at that point, Killian Murphy's already proved himself. By 2010, um, he's, done, he's doing an awful lot with relatively smaller roles i think at that point so mm-hmm. kelly murphy yeah. still you can see where that's his first choice probably and where i i'd have been very very interested in a performance like this um or at least i should say a material like this for a killian murphy as opposed to what we get from franco which again isn't bad but um it's just it's not the best it's certainly not what the the critics some of the some of the critics were saying at the time um, real quick, just to do a quick letterbox rundown. As I kind of alluded earlier, oh, maybe I didn't allude earlier. Uh, the Scooby Doo is mentioned a number of times, but uh, letterbox. There's a lot of three and a half and three star reviews as the top reviews, and a lot of them are very like quippy and jokey, which makes sense given this was like a pretty recent and pretty big movie. Um, just run down, uh, reading directly from them. Honestly, if I was in that situation, I would just let je- let death take me into its loving arms. I feel that. I think we're all on the same page there. The Rock's acting was phenomenal. Okay, nice joke. There was no need for that scary-ass Scooby-Doo jump scare, all caps. Um, This is why I don't go outside, kids. That arm scene, fucking hell. Who knew that James Franco stuck to a rock for 90 minutes could not only be so interesting, but also amazing, question mark. Uh, James Franco must have felt the same kind of pain I feel when I sleep with my arm behind my head, but kind of worse. (laughs) So it's, it's stuff like that. No real like insider <laughs> inside of the movie or anything like super smart or insightful. Just like a lot of quips and Scooby Doo mentions and James Franco mentions. Um, at the Oscars, this was nominated for six Academy Awards: Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Score, Best Original Song, Best Editing. It loses all of them. Uh, it loses picture and actor to the King's Speech. It loses adapted screenplay to the Social Network. It loses best score to the Social Network. It loses best song to Randy Newman and Toy Story Three, and loses best editing to Inception. Uh, question, TJ: Were you aware that Randy Newman best won best original song for Toy Story Three, but not for Toy Story One? Did you know that? Um, no, I don't think I knew he didn't win for Toy Story well, I One. I would have assumed that he loses. He loses to Colors of the Wind, doesn't he? To Pocahontas. That's correct. You think you own whatever land you land on. That beats, you've got a friend Earth in me. Earth is just a dead thing you can claim. 
I mean, that's a great song, but it's not You right. Got a Friend in Me. Uh, TJ, can you name the song from Toy Story 3 that won Randy Newman the Best Original Song Oscar? Can you name the title? No, but I think Ken can. He's doing a pantomime of it right now. <laughs> Ken's dancing. Yeah, we belong together. Da, 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 da. I could I could have told you the title. I could not have sung you a, a note of that song. So I'm glad you got the, the title on there. Yeah. I um, vaguely remember all of these songs being performed that year at the Oscars. And I remember that's the only one that really kind of it played well. <laughs> the others are all much, the yeah. others are all slower. I like this song, though, that A.R. Rahman and Dido wrote, performed by Dido. Um, it's called If I Rise. That's the best original song here. That is such a best original song title, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it really, <laughs> yeah. really, really is. I know this is your favorite category, TJ, and I know that you don't have any bits or jokes about this title or about this uh, category, so I'm glad you just acknowledged straight face. It's a very a best original song title. Um, that's just like a weird quirk of how the Oscars work and like make up Oscars, how Randy Newman did not win the Oscar for... You've got a friend in me, but did for the Toy Story three song that I would not ever remember. But you know, whatever. The other thing I want to mention is it's it's funny to me that this is nominated for picture, actor, adapted screenplay, score, song, editing. I believe Slumdog Millionaire won like four of those six categories a few years earlier. It won picture, it won adapted screenplay, it won score, and it won song, and it might have won editing. I don't remember though, but it won at least four, if not five, of those Oscars, which I think is kind of funny. Um. And it was the same people involved, like the same producers, one best picture for Slumdog that got nominated for 127 hours. Uh, his screenwriter, Simon Bofoy, for here, nominated for best dad screenplay, one for best dad screenplay two years earlier. Um, same for the score, A.R. Rahman won the Oscar two years earlier, got nominated here, didn't win. And same for best. So, like, it's just funny to me that, like, the same team was nominated this time, but won two years earlier. TJ, how do you feel about this in the scope of best picture nominees? Um, I'm not wild about this. I, about it being up there. I'm, I'm not really wild about the movie. I think I would give the movie a pass. I don't like to give scores, but just to gauge my feelings, this is like a three out of five, maybe for me. Um, and it doesn't see, well, I wouldn't say put it in best picture. It's better than Wilson. Um, you can put that on the poster. Uh, I would rather have my arms stuck than watch Wilson again, but um, I, I think it's a kind of a strange movie to put up there. And I think a lot of it it's getting in there has to do with a rather rousing final, I don't know, six ish minutes that is coasting a lot on Sigur Ross. Um, I was just going to bring up Sigur Ross. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that it's a movie that you go back to 2010 and you're like, Hey, remember that one? Other than like the guy cuts his arm off, you know? I definitely do go back to it, but maybe it's because it was like a big deal to me at the time. And so when I think about the movies of 2010, I'm thinking about the movies that I was like anticipating and really excited for. And this was certainly one of them. Um, it's also funny though, mention the Sigur Raw song that ends the movie. Uh, again, I learned from the blank check episode that uh, Aaron Ralston in real life is really into fish mm-hmm. as alluded by Kate Mara and Amber Tamlin in this movie. And he really, really wanted the end song to be a fish song. And so Danny Boyle, unfamiliar with their catalog listened to a bunch of fish music hoping to find one that could be usable for the end of this movie and was like i can't do it (laughs) i I can't i can't find a single one that would work so sorry we're not gonna have a fish song end the movie we're gonna go with sigur ross instead um i i understand your criticisms I, i get it uh this movie really works for me though as i've kind of said a bunch now and i was trying to think of 
why this works so well for me. And I know part of it's nostalgia, as I just said. Like, when I think of moves 2010, this was, like, a big one for me at the time. So it's going to, like, remain a big one for me moving forward. But I was trying to think about it in a larger context. And I think part of why I like it so much is that divorcing myself from the movie itself and only thinking about the context. Like, this is one of the most insane stories any of us have ever heard or will ever hear that a guy improbably got pinned to a canyon wall by a giant boulder that he could not move and could not extricate himself. And then after five days, he cut his own arm off and lived to tell the tale. That's just a wild, 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 legendary story, you know, that will people may be telling like a hundred years from now, potentially. I don't really know. Um, So like that in itself is crazy. And I can't believe somebody actually did this, which is, that's maybe a big part of why the movie works for me. But for context, last night I went and saw Dumb Money, which is currently in theaters about the uh, GameStop, uh, GameStop stock story from early 2021. And I was thinking about that as I watched this last night because that is also a very, very crazy story. The GameStop stock story was insane and hard to believe. But that movie, Dumb Money, it's, it's hardly a movie. It's barely a movie. It's basically just like, hey, this happened. It isn't that crazy. And like 127 hours is also a, hey, this happened. It isn't that crazy situation. But they actually built a very satisfying uh, narrative around it, I thought. Like, uh, this is a movie, you know? There's there's three acts. I can follow what it's doing. There's an arc. Uh, there's themes. There's ideas. It It's making an argument and making points in support of that argument. The movie is making an argument. And like, dumb money is not. Dumb money is just, hey, this happened. Isn't that interesting? And so I think that like, I think the story... Yes, this is an interesting divorce in the context of the movie, but it's also in the form of a good movie to me. You know, there's arcs, and it's very satisfying. It's very cathartic. Uh, it's tense. It's intense. Um, it's visceral. And, like, it works for me. Like, it, it all plays. Like, this plays for me. So, Ken, what do you think overall? How does this compare to you for other Best Picture novels? Uh, I, I probably closer to TJ on this one. I'm not really wild about it being nominated for Best Picture. Um, I think it's fine. I think it. I think it does what it needs to do. Um, I just don't particularly love all of the choices I think Boyle's making, and I guess I'm just at the end of it. It's not that long of a movie, and yet because of all the setup partially around the film, because of knowing what I know about the film going into it, so much of it feels like it's taking a little too long. And it's, I'm not. I'm not with him on all of the choices he's making during that interim hour. Credits roll at credits roll at eighty nine yeah, and a half a minutes. Great, That's when the closing credits yeah, begin to roll. Really, really snappy yeah. as far as as far as time. It's a really short watch, um, relatively speaking, particularly compared to some of the other ones we're going to watch for twenty ten. Yeah. Um, but that said, it, it's not necessarily the fastest moving film for me, partially because I'm yeah. very aware of when he becomes stuck. And at that moment, you're like, there's still an hour and 15 or an hour and technically what, 12 to go or something like that. And you're just yeah. suddenly thinking, what are we going to do for the next hour plus? Yeah. Yeah. Can I rant for another about two minutes and then we can wrap this I thing up? I think ranting is essential for this particular podcast. Okay. So I'm just going to rant a little bit more about why I like this because I, I wrote this down. I might as well just say it because I wrote it down. Um, I find this to be very life affirming in a way that I respond to. And I find that I respond to movies that are life affirming in this way. In the fact that um, 
this is a guy that wanted to live so bad and dying would have been very easy, but he still decided to do what he needed to do in order to live. And I think about, I'm thinking about the movie um, Arrival, which is life affirming in a different way in that not to spoil the ending of Arrival, but characters make decisions knowing that those decisions will lead to immense, immense pain and suffering for themselves. But they make those those decisions anyway, because the good parts that will come from that decision make the immense pain and suffering worth it. And so that is also life affirming. You're making a choice to live despite knowing that living is going to bring you hardship, basically. And uh, life is worth the pain is the ultimate thesis there. And same same here. And I'm also thinking about um, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. In the ending of that movie, um, those two characters make a decision to be together despite knowing that they will inevitably break up and experience immense, immense heartache at their breakup. But again, their time together would be worth that immense heartbreak. So again, life is worth the pain kind of thing. And Aaron Ralston here, the easiest thing in the world would have been for him to just like lay down and die. And that actually would have been like a relief, honestly, after being stuck here for as long as he was. But instead of doing that, he decides to... He decides that the pain of cutting through that nerve, his arm being dead in lava, was worth it because he gets to continue living. And the life he would get to, the more time he got after leaving that rock was worth the immense pain and suffering he went through to extricate himself from that rock, which I find very um, inspiring, I guess. And again, I just, that works on me. Like, I've mentioned a few movies where it's also kind of doing the same, playing in the same sandbox, and it always works on me. So, like, I don't know. I guess I just respond I, to that. Um, I can't disagree the idea. on the inspiring part. Um, the only thing I think I, when watching this, I feel a little differently about the fact of him having to cut his arm off. I 100% agree that even if I were in that moment, I would probably be able to tell myself, you know what? If I manage to successfully cut my arm off and get out of all of this, I'll probably be able to look back and say, you know, it was worth it. Because when, if you're alive, you're able to look back and say, hey, it's better than not being here. The question is whether or not you have the fortitude, whether or not you have the, the bravery and the strength, both mentally and physically, to do that to yourself. That's that's what makes, I think, Aaron Ralston's story that much more shocking and impressive, because you can't picture yourself actually getting to that point, getting beyond that point to so the, to the to where you can look back and say yeah I'm glad I did that because otherwise I wouldn't be here it's not that you can't it's yeah. not that you can't see that it's nece- necessary it's that you just can't see yourself actually getting to the point where you say you know what I can do this yeah and I, I guess I guess I'll end by saying that uh, the movie ends very life affirming with those end title cards about how Aaron was able to extricate himself and he got married and they had a kid. His vision of his future son came true, but uh, this experience did not kill his adventurous spirit. He still goes climbing and et cetera and explores, but now he just tells people where he's going, et cetera. Uh, that's a really nice bow on all this. And like, again, it leans into the life firming part. Uh, there's a bit sadder, darker coda after the credits roll. I think in real life, Aaron Ralston uh, divorced this woman like a year after the movie came out or something like that. And uh, he has since said that he went through some uh, pretty intense, like depressive episodes and hardship after the events, you know, after this movie came out, basically he was on all these talk shows and the movie kind of implies like this experience made him like cherish his life. But like in actuality, it might've been the opposite where he thought, Oh, I'm invincible. And this experience kind of fucked me up and like, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to, how to live after this. And so that's sad, but 
you know, it is what it is. I guess I'm glad the movie puts a nice bow on it, but you know, life is always more complicated than the movie would imply. Um, and I guess that's the end point for the episode because I don't know where to go from here. <laughs> so that's a, that's 127 hours. Uh, I like it an awful lot. TJ and Ken don't like it as much, but I think it's great. Um, any other final thoughts before I transition clunkily into next week's movie, which is also very dark? No, a very different right. way. Next week. Yes. Also, okay, so I mentioned earlier that I watched this movie in the theater in 2010 with very sweaty palms. My palms were even sweatier watching next week's movie. And uh, I, I, I was with my girlfriend at the time and like my hand was on my, my, my hand got her jeans wet because my palms were so sweaty watching next week's movie, which is. Black Swan <laughs> next week, starring Natalie Portman. What sounds like a very, you know, that's a great way to sell the next episode, by the way, because that's the anecdote we need more information on. I think that's basically it. I was extremely nervous, and like not in like a gross way. Just my hand was like on her knee in the theater because I needed something to hold on to that wasn't the the. I don't know if the movie chair had like armrests that I could hold on to, so I was holding on to her instead, and I was very nervous that whole time because it's a very intense psychological thriller and. I was nervous the whole movie, so apparently my body manifested have, sweaty palms. I'll have a, a uh, I'll have a, a screening uh, anecdote as well from that movie. So come back and join us next. week. Well, you'll have to turn in. You'll have to turn in next week. Tune in next week to hear the anecdote of Ken Dusold watching Black Swan. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on uh, TikTok, I guess, and on Patreon, and you can email us. Uh, all these things will be in the description of the episode on your podcasting app of your choice. So I don't have to read them all here. And please, I hope you enjoyed it for 27 hours. Please join us again next week for Black Swan. Thanks for listening. Move this fucking rock! <laughs>